He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 16, 2021. Why am I optimistic? Because soon, our next show, Donald Trump will be gone. Joe Biden will be in. God knows what will happen next, between now and then. But we will talk about it next week. This past week has been plenty exciting. For me, I got to interview a tremendous author. Brian Rosenwald wrote the book about talk radio and how it's ruining America. I had never thought about it the way Brian explained it, and I was part of it. That interview is the highlight of the show. He's my third guest. Second guest, my troubadour, Dave Gunders, Stranger in a Strange Land, is right on time. I feel like a stranger in a strange America watching what we are witnessing. And we talk about it with Cole West. He returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He's a brave Republican willing to stand up to Donald Trump. I like that. Enjoy. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's an honor and a privilege to welcome back to the lounge, Cole West, a really bright lawyer. He was a legislator until Donald Trump came along. Cole West, I always talk about you as a rising star. How old are you? Do you still consider yourself a rising star or are you plateaued? Where are you, man? I turned 58 in December, so you know I'm an eternal optimist. Craig, I hope I still have some good days ahead of me. I think you are a young fella. Can I hearken back to different times with you? 2012, the GOP, of which you were a stalwart member, offered independents like me the enticing choice of Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. Can you believe that was about eight years ago? Yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago. I think our country's been through a lot since that election, and certainly the Republican Party has been through a lot since that election. Tell us about your future. 2012, what was your role in that campaign, and where did you launch your career to even go further? So I was an active member of the party, served as a precinct leader for a long, long time, volunteered on you know many state and national campaigns. So didn't really know whether that would ever result in me serving an elected office, but I had that opportunity in late 2015 and, and 2015 through 2018 served in the state legislature. And it was a great privilege and an honor to be able to serve. Right. And then you got tossed aside for somebody more conservative in a primary. Well, you put it in your own words this week on the podcast. My only other guest beside my troubadour is Brian Rosenwald, who wrote about talk radio and its influence 
and right-wing conservatism taking over. It's been replicated throughout the country, but just remind people of what happened to you. Well, I didn't lose in a primary. I lost in the general election in, in 2018. And as you know, we've seen pretty significant political changes in the suburbs, in the Denver metro area over the course of the last four years, going from a pretty solidly Republican territory to the Democrats essentially running places like Jefferson and Arapahoe County. I served a district that was entirely contained in Arapahoe County, and we don't have any representatives or senators that are Republicans in the state legislature from Arapahoe County. And Jeffco is moving in that direction as well. So it's a huge, in fact, I'll use the word seismic shift in terms of where Colorado is politically. I think the Democrats have done a very good job in terms of laying out their vision for the state. I remain a Republican. I hope that that conservative and fiscal leadership means something in our state. And hopefully uh, the Republican Party will be able to offer an alternative vision to what we're getting from from the Democratic Party. But we certainly have some work to do on our messaging and trying to become relevant as a party in Colorado again. We're not where we used to be, for sure. I respect your opinion because I think you're in the moderate middle. That's where I am. You're living the life that I am. Our kids are even in school together. You are a respected Denver lawyer. I'd like to think I am the same. What's going on in the world right now, it's important to evaluate out of the mind of a Republican. Cole West, the floor is yours. Let's start with, of course, Donald Trump, but his ineptitude handling COVID. Today it came out. We're doing this late on a Friday afternoon for our Saturday show. Just came out that those vaccines promised they're fictional. And who could have guessed it? Donald Trump asleep on the job. Have you ever seen a chief executive in any company or any state, anything at all, perform at this level? The answer is no. And I can tell you that in the private sector, if someone had been an executive of a company and operated or ran that company the way Donald Trump ran the executive branch of the federal government over the last four years, they would have been canned. He spent most of last year denying that COVID was a real thing. He entertained wild conspiracy theories about where COVID came from and simply refused to lead. If there was ever a time where we needed a coordinated federal response to a major disaster, it was COVID and it was in 2020. And by the time the epidemic really took off in the spring and summer of last year, the federal government had no idea whatsoever what to do with it. And the responsibility largely fell to governors around the country. And I'll say, I'll say that governors around the country, I think, did a good job and in some cases an excellent job managing the pandemic. But we needed a coordinated response and we needed a leader at the federal level to guide us through it. And frankly, Craig, I think it was a real missed opportunity by Donald Trump to uh, this was sort of his Churchill moment where he could rise to the occasion and lead the country out of a very dark time. And instead, he decided to focus on himself, focus on his, his worst narcissistic tendencies and fail to lead the country. I think it's one of the, the, the main reasons why he lost the election last year. Thank God for that. 
And while he should have been working on COVID or getting some responsible people to work on it, all his energy went into what I call the big lie. And I use it in the sense of the Third Reich. It's so frightening, and I saw it coming. I don't know about you, Cole West, but I've been hammering this in my podcast, my columns. Some lies are worse than others. And when you say that the election was rigged, you said it before, you said it after, you keep saying it without any evidence, there's nothing more damaging to democracy. And you are an elected official. It's just outrageous. It's repulsive. It is repulsive. Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. He told us before the election, if he lost the election, it would be because of fraud. I think he knew he was going to lose the election, and he prepared us for what was to follow Election Day, and that was a protracted series of misrepresentations and lies, contrary to what Republican and Democratic election officials across the country said, including, you know, top national security experts. And that is, you know, we had a very secure, very safe and very reliable election in November. But Trump continued to perpetuate the myth and the lie following the election. And all of that resulted in the tragic and frankly, outrageous series of events that we saw at the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I, I lived a couple of blocks from the U.S. Capitol when I was in law school at Georgetown. I spent some time in that building when I worked on the Hill. Uh, and to see what happened in that building on January 6th, I just turned my stomach. I think it's one of those moments in history that we're going to look back on as a, a major event that we'll all remember where we were when we saw it, when we heard about it. And it's going to linger in our country for a while longer. And hopefully we'll learn from this, we'll learn what caused it, and we'll hope to avoid a reoccurrence in the future. It's still with a lot of us, and I'm sure it's with you. Oh, my gosh. It's terrible. I didn't go to school in Washington, but I've spent some of the most memorable days of my life in that capital. It's the people's house. It's a sacred place. And on talk radio, I hate to bring that up, but it's part of the theme of this show with my guest who wrote a great book about it. Those who talk about it as the temple of democracy, I heard that ridiculed on hate radio. Oh, the temple, you know, it's like, come on, man. And that's why I like to talk to you, Cole, because how come there aren't more Republicans like you willing to speak these truths? Well, I, I think there are more of us than you know, and I've heard from a lot of them since Election Day. And I'll tell you, there's concern in the Republican Party that we've lost our way. And what I keep telling people is, I think in the short term, just sort of looking at where we are right now, it looks pretty bleak. But I think once Donald Trump leaves office, and once the country pivots, and frankly, once the Republican Party pivots, we're going to see, hopefully, some of the, the, the bad things that we should have avoided and learn our lesson. But either the Republican Party is going to pivot and turn away from Trumpism or the Republican Party will not survive because, you know, this nationalist movement that is sympathetic to white supremacists 
and bigots and racists and, and folks who want to pit groups against one another and incite violence and hate, the Republican Party has to distance itself from that group once and for all. And if it doesn't, it will pay the consequence. Does that mean Cole West will leave? No, I'm not going to put you on the spot. And you're still a young man with a bright future, and you're too young to really remember George Wallace. But I do remember him thinking, gosh, an open racist, and he's getting a lot of the vote, but at least he was never going to really win the Democratic nomination, even though he tried, and he can run as a third party and maybe win a southern state. But what happened to those George Wallace bigoted voters? Where did they go? Well, they got cultivated, and now they are the Republicans' problem. So they've taken over the Republican Party. We thought that guys like Cole West were stronger than that, but you're not in office right now, and some people far more radically right than you are. I don't know how how would you tell people in the moderate middle that we could ever trust Republicans again? Well, Craig, a few weeks ago, I wrote an op-ed in the Denver Post with my good friend Doug Friednash. He's a former state representative, Democrat, works at another large law firm in, in Denver. And, right. And, you know, Doug and I got, to, you know, we, we've had several conversations about his own frustration about the center left folks feeling like they're politically homeless and similar to that, the folks that are center-right feel like our party doesn't speak to us and doesn't really embrace us as being a part of the party. So I think either both parties are going to learn how to appeal to folks that are center-right and center-left, or more and more people are going to become unaffiliated. And I don't know that the time has ever been more right than it is right now for the emergence of a viable third party. Maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. But it says a lot to me that over 40 percent of the electorate in Colorado chooses not to affiliate with either party. It's the majority of the electorate in our state. And why is that? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons. Maybe some people think that their parties aren't extreme enough. But I think the vast majority of the folks that are in that group are in the unaffiliated ranks because neither party speaks to them. They see some issues from a liberal perspective some issues from a conservative perspective. But most importantly, they want the parties to stop playing partisan games and to work together constructively and collaboratively to solve problems. And if our parties don't start behaving in a way that appeals to those people and that is working towards a future that speaks about true solutions to problems, then the political parties will suffer as a consequence. Well, let's play this out. This is where you're so valuable because. You are pro-life, correct? I am. So this third party, how are they going to bring pro-choice and pro-life people together? Isn't that a cultural breaking point? I think there are more issues than that. I totally agree, but it would take people like you who say, yeah, I'm pro-life, but it's not my end-all be-all. I think there are a variety of issues where we can seek unity. Right. When I served in the legislature, I worked on bills with folks on the other side of the aisle. And, and I know there were a lot of issues that we fundamentally disagreed on, but the point of solving problems is to find things you have in common with other people. And let's face it, as Coloradans, as Americans, there are some basic values that we all share, things like making our communities safe, making sure that our schools are 
providing quality education for our kids, making sure that our educational system is providing opportunities for kids to get good jobs when they get out of school and to you know create opportunities. So, right, but what's the future of a coal West in that? Because they will ask you, are you pro-life? And you'll say yes, and they'll say, well, we feel like Roe v. Wade is under threat, which it honestly is, given the composition of the Supreme Court. So thank you for your interest, but we'd rather have somebody who's going to protect what most of the people in our third party believe. So do you see it could be a deal breaker for you? Well, isn't that what's wrong with the political system when it's boiled down to litmus tests and either you meet every single test or every single element of a litmus test or you're out? And that's, frankly, that's the reason why 40-some percent of the electorate is choosing not to affiliate, because they don't meet the litmus test. And frankly, it's an unrealistic expectation for candidates to meet the litmus test. I'd rather have people serve in government who are thinking, rational human beings who may not agree with me on everything, but I think they're thinking through problems and not just voting a certain way because the party tells them to vote that way. I think I have a good idea for the party that you and I can both excel at. It's going to be the anti-Trump party. We totally repudiate the attitudes, the governance, the competence of Donald Trump. We stand for the opposite of what he stands for. Don't you think there's a big appeal? Because isn't that the one litmus test right now? Are you with Trump or do you see the light? I think it's a matter of whether or not you're for an authoritarian government or whether you're for democracy and whether or not you're for the long and great tradition we've had in our country of a democratic republic working well. But those weren't the kinds of things that Donald Trump was talking about. And frankly, in all fairness, both parties have been willing participants in the growing executive reach of power at a federal level. There ain't never been anything like this. Can we stipulate to that, counsel? We've never had a president who approached the kind of authoritarian rhetoric that Donald Trump espoused. So we can certainly agree on that. I think I know the happy ending, and it involves our profession, trial law. And there's going to be a real trial now in the Senate. And maybe, I hope, that Donald Trump gets arrested soon and he gets a fair trial where you don't suppress the evidence. You have the competent evidence come in. And this was a stupid crime. You know, I got a lot of credit for convicting so many people during my 16 years as a prosecutor, but usually they left so much evidence and I just put it together like a trial lawyer does. And I persuaded 12 people to convict. Don't you think that this Trump insurrection is a case that trial lawyers are itching to put together and there's just an overabundance of evidence that's going to lead back to Donald J. Trump and his henchmen. Well, it's rare, Craig, that you have a crime committed with this many witnesses. I mean, every member of Congress who was in the Capitol on January 6th is a witness to an attempted coup, to insurrection, to domestic terrorism. That's what happened on January 6th. This wasn't First Amendment activity. These were people that breached the walls of the Capitol with the intent to overturn an election. And I've, as you have, I'm sure, read some pretty disturbing press coverage recently of the true intent of some of the people that entered the Capitol that day. 
they were one minute away from getting BP Pence. And if that hero guard Goodman had not held them off, distracted them, Pence might have been hung on those gallows. You know, I think there's a desire for the country to turn the page and to pivot away from this. You know, and there are times when I feel that way. But if we don't truly look at what happened and if we don't hold people accountable for what happened, it will happen again because we're normalizing something that should never under any circumstance be normalized. The U.S. Capitol hadn't been under attack and breached like that since 1812, right? And there's a reason why we consider it to be the temple of democracy. There's a reason why we protect it above all else. And as a country, this has to be something for us to rally around. We can disagree about policy. We can disagree about who should be in elected office. But we have to have common respect for our institutions of government. And we have to have common respect for law and order and public safety. Thank God this is in 1812, and it's 2021 where every square inch of the Capitol has surveillance cameras. Wouldn't you agree? And don't you think that the tragic beating, death, bludgeoning of Officer Sicknick is somewhere recorded, and at some point we are going to see it? That's going to be powerful, don't you think? Well, it's a homicide. Yes. You know, Craig is a DA you prosecuted homicides. And that's what happened. It can't be normalized. It can't be justified. Folks that are engaging in the whataboutism and talking about the riots that happened last summer, that was wrong. But I I don't think that you can equate civil uh, unrest in the country last summer with an invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Point me to somebody who told the people to loot REI or wherever. I want that person prosecuted. Somebody right, absolutely. Who, and so Trump is the guy who incited this. We see him, and it was on the Capitol, not just any building. It's just plain as day to me. But it wasn't just Trump. There were congressional leaders. A lot of people were using really dangerous rhetoric leading up to January 6th. But without Donald Trump saying what he did leading up to January 6th, without Donald Trump inviting that crowd to Washington, that event doesn't happen. So for the folks that say that Donald Trump did not incite violence, did not incite insurrection, my challenge back to those folks is, tell me what kind of event would have happened if the president would have conceded the election, would have avoided the crazy rhetoric that he engaged in after the election. And the the fact is, that event doesn't happen if our president steps up and leads, period. Right, which every Republican should have said that to him, but they are frightened of him. It's a mobster organization. That's what the GOP looks like to me. People are scared to break ranks. Weren't you ashamed of the Republicans that only 10 of them would vote for impeachment, given what had just happened to them? Yeah, I was disappointed, but I wasn't surprised. I'm hoping that that people will start to think less about being afraid of Donald Trump and his base and start to think more about what the country needs and doing the right thing. And as I said at the outset of our conversation today, Craig, I think the country is going to look differently in six months. I think the Republican Party will look different in six months. And hopefully we'll be moving in the direction of more sanity in our politics, 
less extremism, less violence, less polarization, and more about working on the, the big problems that we have in the country, like getting this pandemic under control and getting our economy back on track. At the dinner, Mitt Romney get it right, saying none of this will happen without you telling the truth. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, that's got to happen. And there has to be accountability. I suggest arrest, prosecution, and let's see what a jury says, Donald Trump. You've never really been accountable ever. I want to see a real Senate trial. And do you think the Republicans will convict him? I do. I'm going on record that if he allows it to happen, and Trump will probably find a way to obstruct justice, that's his specialty. But I think that, of course, with Schumer in charge and the Dems, there's going to be real evidence, and it's overwhelming. And you'll probably see that sick video, and that's going to be a hanging jury. I can tell you as a prosecutor, I love the Mitch McConnell types on the jury. I think there are a lot of people who wonder why we would have a trial after President Trump leaves office. There's a legal debate going on among scholars as to whether or not there's a constitutional basis for it. But, you know, one of the things that's at issue here is whether or not the president should ever be able to run for office again. That can be resolved only through a trial. Or a plea bargain. Right. So, you know, I, I think that's the one reason why a trial needs to go forward. There were serious impeachable offenses committed by the president. Mitch McConnell has said that he believes that there were impeachable offenses committed. I, I think it was a no-brainer that this ends up in a trial before the Senate. And the evidence needs to come forward and the American people need to hear it. I do not want one more penny of my tax dollars to pay for Secret Service guys to ride in Donald Trump golf carts. I just don't want to do it. I, I'm done with the grift. It would be only appropriate not to give him money. You're a great civil attorney. What is the civil liability if Trump is held accountable for what he surely did inciting the Trump insurrection? What about the property damage? What about the wrongful deaths? Even with all the grifting he's done, he's not going to be able to cover that bill, correct? I think that's a much that's a much tougher case to make. You get into questions about whether or not there's civil liability for somebody who's engaging in official acts. But you know, I would argue that these are acts that are outside the protection of what someone in a governmental capacity would receive immunity for. So I, you know, I honestly, Greg, I, like I haven't given. You and I might disagree. I like it. I think it's much tougher. I, I, but I, I do think and I have confidence that the Department of Justice has some very smart criminal prosecutors looking at all of these events. We've already had a couple hundred arrests. I think there are more to come. And folks both who have held elected, who are in elected office now and private citizens, if they participated in this, if they encouraged it, if they facilitated it in any way, I'm confident that the Department of Justice will discover it and that they will prosecute it. And that's Donald J. Trump. He's guilty. In fact, the opening statement was written by Liz Cheney. On January 6, 2021, a violent mob attacked the United States Capitol to obstruct the process of our democracy and stop the counting of presidential electoral votes. 
This insurrection caused injury, death, and destruction in the most sacred space in our republic. Much more will become clear in coming days and weeks. But what we know now is enough. The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the president. That's the greatest statement by Cheney of all time. And Lynn Cheney went to Colorado College. I'm going to credit my alma mater, but doesn't that make you want to stand up and cheer that her daughter, Liz, could have the courage to write that? Liz Cheney was spot on. I thought it was one of the most eloquent and frankly honest statements that I've seen about what happened on January 6th from someone in either party. So she's to be commended for her leadership. And, you know, and we shouldn't have to say that somebody's brave. We've got to normalize telling the truth again. And you shouldn't have to be congratulated or praised because you're telling the truth. And what Liz Cheney told was the truth. She is amazing and impressive in every respect. What about the other Republicans? Jason Crow has said they were scared for their lives. They'd like to echo what Cheney said. I worked with Jason in private practice before he ran for Congress. He's a personal friend. I can't imagine what it was like to be sitting in the gallery with people trying to storm the House floor, with people banging doors and breaking windows. It's got to be terrifying. And at the end of the day, these are husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, and you know they were under attack that day. And I don't think we're, well, we'll probably learn. I think we're in the process of learning how truly close we came to something really awful happening. And we did lose lives that day, but members of Congress could have been assassinated. I think there was a true risk of that. And I think there were those that entered the Capitol that day with that intent. So the fact that we came out without that consequence, I'll never be able to adequately express my appreciation for the bravery of the police officers. They were in the Capitol that day. They were outnumbered. They were outflanked. And uh, there were some true heroes. Don't you think that somebody undermined the response? No way was there that little resistance without somebody being on the take. On the take from Team Trump. And it all points to Donald Trump. You're praising Cheney, but I'm telling you, it's tough to come to grips with it. But Donald Trump watched it and he wanted those people to catch up with Mike Pence and put their fingers around his neck. He really did. And when you accept that, that he would go that far to obstruct that process, he's bound and determined to do anything next to go even further. Why weren't we ready that day? I'm confident that the facts are going to come out about what happened. Why was the National Guard not immediately deployed? Frankly, why wasn't the Capitol secured prior to January 6th? All indications were that something significant was going to happen that day. I think the president even said, you know, that the day would be wild. I think that was the word that he used in his tweet. So 
this was exactly what he wanted to happen. This is what he encouraged to happen. So the, the fact that we were flat-footed, I agree with you, wasn't an accident. Something like that isn't an accident. And if decisions were made, if resources were withheld, that, that created an environment where individuals lost their lives, then you and I are, are lawyers. We understand that there are legal consequences criminally for that kind of conduct. And I hope we get to the bottom of it. The last big event that I went to pre-pandemic was a Jewish men's event. I had the honor of going up to Jason Crow, wishing him luck. I had never met him before. I knew the other representatives. And he was very nice to me. And I have to say, he's become one of my all-time favorite Congress people. His heroism, his determination. I like the way he handled himself as a house manager. You're a friend of his. Tell him I admire him immensely. I'd like him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. You contrast that with Lauren Boebert, who's a Republican, and she met with Trump on January 3. She said, I met with the big guy. You all ready for January 6? Then on the morning of January 6, she puts, it's 1776, which is the QAnon way of looking at what was happening. And it was QAnon people there. And I'm going to keep hammering on Donald Trump because a lot of these people, like the shaman with the uh, big horns on his head, I watched his lawyer and he convinced me that this kid, who's not a criminal, has been caught up in QAnon, buying the bullshit that this president is flinging out there. And there are thousands of people like that. And when Trump said that odd phrase, I'm coming with you. I'm going with you to the Capitol. That was a form of permission for them. And if you think about it, especially if you're not fully intact, the president says, I can go in the Capitol. I can go in the Capitol. I mean, he's the number one responsible guy. How can you punish any of them without punishing the guy who put it together? Well, it'll be interesting to see whether Trump's followers stay with him over the next three, six months, the next year? Or will those folks find something else to focus on? But I'm hopeful that the QAnon conspiracy will fade, that folks will start to recognize that they've been lied to, that the folks have misrepresented things to them. And frankly, these people have been exploited. And it's time for us to call it what it is. Well, you are skilled counsel, and I had a bad run-on question, but back to Bobert. What happens to her? Aren't you embarrassed to be a fellow Colorado Republican? Well, let me just say this. I grew up in the 3rd Congressional District. My family still lives in the 3rd Congressional District. That district has a long tradition of sending to Washington people from both parties who have been statesmen people who have worked across the aisle to solve problems. I don't think Lauren Boebert represents that tradition well at all. She doesn't represent me or my values. And there's some great people that live in that congressional district. And I think Lauren Boebert may wear thin over the long haul. We'll see how it goes. Boy, I hope that's true. What do you think happens next? Joe Biden getting sworn in. I can't wait till that happens. I hope that Donald Trump, the air will come out of his balloon as he lands in Mar-a-Lago. Isn't that what you are hoping? And how can we make that happen? 
Craig, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump, but I guess my biggest hope as we have a new president taking office is that we'll talk less about Donald Trump and talk more about solving the real problems that face our country, like getting vaccines out to you know our loved ones and trying to get our, our communities back on track. We've lost a lot over the last year, and we've had a complete failure at the federal level to lead. And I'm hoping that Joe Biden is successful. I'm praying for the new administration to lead our country to a better place. If Joe Biden's successful in doing that, I think folks will understand Donald Trump and and what he stood for is a blip in our history, and we'll get things back on the right track. And from the outside looking in, I look at you, Cole West, devout Catholic. I look at Joe Biden, devout Catholic. I see guys with similar values in many respects. I don't agree with Joe Biden on, on some of his policy issues, but as I've said many times, I do see him as a person of character and integrity, somebody who's been through some really challenging times in his life. And I admire the kind of person he is, that he's been able to bounce back from that. I think he's been a good father and a, and a good husband uh, over the course of his life. It was probably the most important titles that he's had. And I'm optimistic that with his faith, with his character, with his integrity, he can uh, get the country back on the right track. I hope so. I hope so. Let's pray for that. I hope the law comes down to bear and the rule of law is shown to prevail in the world. And finally, as I ask for your Twitter handle, you're part of the corporate world. I think your practice touches on that a lot more than mine does. And wasn't it the corporate world that maybe stopped this insurrection by cutting off Twitter for Donald J. Trump? Do you approve or do you disapprove? And give everybody your Twitter handle because you are a great one to follow. My Twitter handle is at Cole West. I, you know, I, the whole issue relating to you know, whether or not we allow people to publish certain things, I struggle with it, frankly, because I, I am a strong believer in civil liberties and freedom of speech. And I want to make sure that folks have that, that freedom protected. But as you know, there are restrictions on speech when it comes to inciting violence. And, and you know, I, I think we, we have to uh, keep that in mind as well. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm still a work in progress when it comes to how we regulate speech in environments like Twitter. But for Donald Trump, it was a long time coming, given the kind of outrageous rhetoric and the risk to public safety that his rhetoric posed, which we saw come to life on January 6th. Right. And now that he's impeached, which is like being indicted, some of your rights start to disappear. And it's a private company. If a guy got up on your stage and started making speeches like that, inciting a crowd, if you own this stage, you can ask him to leave. Like if anybody owned that stage in Washington, he charges people up. He's inciting people. They're committing violence. And of course, Twitter doesn't want to be a part of it. But Cole West, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for doing this late on a Friday. You'll sound great on Saturday because you are one courageous Republican. I hope that your side wins in the battle for the Republican Party. Hey, Craig, it's always, uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate your time. Okay, take care. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Troubadour. How are you? Wonderful. You? I'm fine. Thank you. Other than having five more days of the Trump bullshit to put up with, can you believe it? 20,000 troops in D.C., all caused by Donald Trump. Can we bill him for that? We can try. I hope somebody sues his ass for what happened in the Capitol, and I'm sure that they will, but he's got to worry about criminal charges. And if I was the prosecutor, I'd order him arrested. And I don't know what's going to happen next. I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land. Well, that's a good segue into my song this week. Really? What's it called? Stranger in a Strange Land. That's strange. (laughs) What a coincidence. Yes, it's a big coincidence. And so tell us how you came up with this song. What's it about? Well, that's a song about an immigrant, a man who has to collect his family from the violence and difficulties of his own country, leave his country, and try to find a home in a new country, many of which don't want anything to do with him. So he's part of a, of a long train of immigrants. You know, I, I was thinking about a lot of the immigration into Europe from Africa, from the Middle East at the time, although it could be said of, you know, the same thing can be said of so many of the immigrants from south of our border. Right. And in the blitzkrieg of information that we are all trying to absorb, it just came out that, of course, it was the White House that directed that family separation, another stain of this era, a Trump stain. And I think your song, Stranger in a Strange Land, it speaks to that. And the way you sing the song and the music, it's subdued. It's sad. Right. It's different than a normal Dave Gunder song. Tell us about that. Right. Well, for one, I use my, I, I sing it very high kind of in a, almost like a falsetto and it has a nice rolling piano part. It is a subdued song and it was, seemed appropriate to the subject matter. In the song, the father talks about reading to his, his son, talks about going to collect his mother who didn't want to leave. And, the, you know, I just tried to imagine what someone would go through with those kinds of difficulties in front of him and no, no more certainty in his life as far as where he's going to land and how he's going to keep his family safe. It's a terrible thing. And you're right, the United States in these past four years, is we have, we have not opened our doors. We've closed our doors to immigrants. Right. And we know about your family background. Henry Gunderheim, I'll never forget. That's right. What we heard on the podcast. But let's hear your song 
And here's the really good news. The next time we are on the podcast, next Saturday, God willing, Joseph R. Biden will be the president of the United States and Donald Trump will be just another loser who could have been something living on the sand in Florida. Very true, Craig, but you've got to keep your podcast going alive and well because there's going to be many more tasks at hand and you got to keep calling the important events that need to be discussed. Many things are not going to go away. I agree. Let's listen to your song. Thank you, David. Thank you, Troubadour. Bye, Craig. Just look at us now. Look what we've become. We're refugees looking all around. We're not the only ones. Plenty more I see. Walk along the tracks, worried for each other. Now face the fact. Better get your things. I tell my mother. Stars and the crescent moon. 
I practice law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. I cannot recommend a book more highly than Talk Radio's America, how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States by Brian Rosenwald, who is my guest right now. Brian, thanks a lot for doing this show. Craig, it's my pleasure to be with you. It's fascinating how our timelines kind of cross. I noticed that your book was published late August 2019 and On November 16, 2019, is when Salem cut the cord for my microphone, literally. As you know, you commented on my case in the New York Times, but I had not read your book at that time. Now I have, and it's fantastic. Congratulations on writing such an important book. Well, thank you. You know, it was a lot of years of digging into the trenches that you know all too well. I wondered about your research. You had to listen to a lot of talk radio. Tell everybody about your book and the premise of it. Well, what the book argues is that totally unintentionally, the new political colossus arose from commercial impulses, from the fact that that Rush Limbaugh comes along in this moment that AM radio needs new programming because music sounds better on FM. And they're trying some talk formats, and Rush Limbaugh comes along. He upends all the premises for what is good talk radio. And he uncovers an audience that had been thirsting for conservative spoken word or video or you know broadcast media content. And over the course of about 13 years or so, we go from having very little talk radio and what talk radio we had was local in nature and in a lot of cases had liberal hosts but you didn't really hear their opinions to something where by the early 2000s it is overwhelmingly conservative it's overwhelmingly nationally syndicated and it has a huge political impact and the thing that so many on the left especially don't get is that most of the people involved in this business though though salem is certainly the exception are driven by the almighty dollar they're not driven by politics so this is a business story, too. And so I try to trace all of these different threads as they come together. And then the, the end of the book is what talk radio has done to the Republican Party and to the Republican base helps to give you Donald Trump, not only as president and how he taps into their playbook that you hear every day on the air, but also to 
a, a political party that is a far-right party, and it's not just about ideology that changes. It's about this kind of warfare mentality towards politics that we've just seen so vividly for two months where it's about winning at all costs. It's about compromises, surrender, and all those kinds of things. So it starts out with the radio story, and that is kind of intertwined with the political story. Geez, you sound pretty smart. I bet you have a PhD from a fancy college. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, th this started as doctoral dissertation research at the University of Virginia. And, you know, people always ask me, well, how did you get into this? Did you listen? Did you come from a family where this is a big deal? And to be very honest, it was an accident. I needed one more research class my last year of classes in graduate school. And as luck would have it, you know, I was planning to write a doctoral dissertation on kind of the demise of the, the old Rockefeller Republicans, the moderate Republicans, because I come from the Philadelphia region where they were very powerful and slowly over a couple of decades disappeared. Problem is, there were like six 20th century American historians at UVA all going on leave in the same year. So I went to my advisor and said, well, what am I supposed to do? I need to take a research seminar. And it's supposed to lead towards your doctoral dissertation research. I'm peeling back the curtain on graduate school for people. But I said, you know, what, what can I do? All the people who would be teaching the classes I need that are relevant are, are going on leave. And he said, you know, I want you to go out to law school. I want you to take the legal history seminar. He said, you know, I think you're really talking about polarization. And there was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine. He mentioned it to me. I'd never heard of it because the Fairness Doctrine went away when I was four years old. And he said, I'm pretty sure it went away. And the next day we got Rush Limbaugh. So I said, okay. And I started digging into this. And what quickly occurred to me was this was a much more complicated story than anybody had ever known. And it was one that hadn't been told. And you know, for a historian, especially a young historian, that's gold. And I just started digging in. I started you know, talking to some people, trying to find what you know, shows I could find from the, the earlier days of talk. So what year is this when you made this fateful decision? This would have been, I guess, the summer of 2010. And then the next fateful moment for me was, so there aren't a lot of resources for, for people who want to study this, by which I mean there aren't a lot of old shows. There are not a lot of talk radio from the 90s. And I was originally going to write, well, impeachment was a big deal in the 90s. The budget shut down with Newt Gingrich in 95. And I thought, okay, I'll do those things as kind of case studies. And it turned out, well, there was no available material on that. So I start going where the material takes me. Because to me, a good historian is like a detective. You follow the clues. And the only real large-scale archive there is is the one at the Library of Congress. They started recording programs in like 2005 off the internet. And here's where your law background will make this amusing for you. Thanks to our lovely copyright laws, they record a show every week off the internet, but you can only listen to those shows on a desktop in the library during business hours. And so I had to go to DC for several weeks. And I said, you know, I wish as a scholar, most of us scholars wish that we could work like nine to fives, um, five days a week, but that that's not really what you're used to. So I said, you know, I'm going to have more time when I'm in D.C. Let me look at trying to interview some people. So 
I found an article from the 90s on Republican and Democratic outreach to talk radio. And I looked some of the people up, you know, Googled them and interviewed one or two of them. And those people said, you know, you, you have to talk to these three people and use my name. And I said, okay. And it became almost a game of whisper down the lane where someone would say, well, you got to talk to this person. And that person would say, you got to talk to these three people. And over the next like five years or seven years, ended up doing more than 300 interviews for this. And I just sort of followed the information where it took me. That is fascinating. And that makes the events of this week personal to you because you were right in the Capitol complex. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talked about that when the Republican representatives were complaining about going through the metal detectors the other day. I said, you know, when I was doing this research, I was sitting there eight or nine hours a day. And at lunchtime, I'd get up and I'd go down the street to get food and I have to come back in. And I had just, you know, said, see you guys in a little bit to the, the security and the Capitol Police officers. And it didn't matter. When I came back, I still had to go through the metal detectors, you know, even though they saw me every day for two weeks. And it was a daily kind of pattern. I could vividly see the landscape as this was happening. Oh, my gosh. The Capitol is special to me as well. I was privileged to cover for the Salem affiliate, the BB Netanyahu speech. I was back there covering APAC and a guy named Jared Polis, who was representative from Colorado. Now he's our governor. He called me in my hotel room. He says, Craig, because I was begging for a ticket to that BB Netanyahu speech that was so famously boycotted, including by BP, soon to be President Biden. But I was there in that famous chambers where so much has happened this last week. But that's not even my biggest memory, because a couple of years later, Salem had me for a day at the White House. And the next day in the Capitol, Salem, Ed Singer, the boss, Bill Boyce, all the personalities, not just me, but my son, Sam, age 15, the only teenager in the crowd, getting addressed by Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy in the bowels of the Capitol. And we'd been there all day, gotten a tour by Cory Gardner's staff, Cory Gardner, who I've repeatedly called out over the last 18 months. We used to be, did a lot of radio together. Anyway, the Capitol, that whole day was so memorable, so great. But you worked there. And thanks for indulging me that memory. Uh, because it's tied up in my talk radio experience. And while you write unbelievably well about Rush Limbaugh and his appeal, I mean, I remember the first time I heard him and I thought, wow, this is different. I like it. And part of it, and you describe it well, he always seemed friendly. And even when he took on a collar, it seemed to be with a smile on his face. And an old radio pro in Denver said, when you're hosting a show, your tail should be wagging. And Rush's tail is usually wagging like he's happy. And isn't that part of the key to his success? Well, yeah. You know, I think that our perception of Rush Limbaugh today is skewed some because I think today there's a little bit more of an edge. There's an anger to him. He's more of a straight up political commentator. And a lot of people assume that's how he always was. But if you go back to the earliest days of Rush Limbaugh on the air, he's a fun-loving guy. He's having a good time. He seems like somebody you'd want to go have a beer with. And 
he's talking to his callers. He's playful. He's making fun of his call screeners and his engineers. He's doing these sound bites that sometimes he can't even hold the laughter in himself when he's doing some of the sound bites and the skits and the updates on everything from condoms to homelessness to all, all these things. And for those who haven't heard them, he has a theme song for each one. And it's usually something that would mock the left in some way. And he's getting his conservatism across, but he's doing it in a funny way. He's doing it in ways that are kind of outrageous, that push boundaries that people had never heard anything like this. And quickly people realize it's appointment listening. You know, not only do you have to listen every day, but if you get to your destination in the car, you need to sit there and listen because you don't know what you're going to miss if you don't. And within a couple of years, he becomes a cultural phenomenon where restaurants have rush rooms where you can go and listen to him and have a bite to eat without missing anything because it's just kind of special and unique and different. And the, the comparison I always make for those who are not fans of talk radio, who are sort of skeptical, saying, well, you know, I, I've seen a little bit of like Fox News opinion stuff, and it's not like that. What are you talking about? I see, you know, this was really like The Daily Show for a conservative. It had conservative values, certainly. It was rooted in kind of the dinner table conversation or the neighborhood bar conversation in a conservative neighborhood. But it was fun. It was funny. He had nicknames. You know, if you talk about somebody dying, you'd say, you know, friends, I, I regret to tell you that this person has assumed room temperature. There was even a, this language to it. And he didn't rail about communism. This is the late 80s. He didn't sermonize. What he did was he talked about Gorbasms and how the left and the media, when Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, that he was the only one who could save us from trigger-happy Ronald Reagan. And Gorbasms had a theme song, which was the Imperial March from Star Wars, you know, Darth Vader's music. So it was just all this fun, playful stuff that reflected the fact that he had been a DJ. And he was basically doing the same stuff he had done in little stations outside of Pittsburgh in the 70s while he's playing, you know, Benny and the Jets. And the only sermonizing that he ever did, and I love that Benny and the Jets, my firstborn son is named Benny, so... I remember that now about Rush, now that you bring it up. But he would sermonize when he would rip the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And he right. took on the sacred cow of Jesse Jackson. And he also took on John McCain, mocking him, paving the way for you-know-who to do the very same thing and get away with it, just like Rush Limbaugh had for years. Absolutely. You're right about the Reverend Jackson and... One thing that somebody who put him on a station relatively early on told me is he said, you know, the thing about good talk radio and especially Rush Limbaugh is he's willing to turn everybody's sacred cow into two steaks and a burger. And that's exactly what he did. And you're right. Where we all missed the boat in 2015, except ironically for Rush in a lot of ways, was that we all said, well, there's no way Trump can win a primary. As a Republican, I mean, this guy doesn't even know what it sounds like to be pro-life. He was talking about an assault weapons ban at one point in his life. He's donated to Democrats and Republicans. He's a New York libertine. You know, what are you talking about? Is that he channeled the style that Rush pioneers and that by 2015 it spread all over the Internet and television and the radio airwaves. And he does a lot of the same thing. It's in your face. Somebody says, you can't say that. He says, oh, you better believe I'm going to say it. And then I'm going to double down. 
He has nicknames for everybody. He's always ripping the mainstream media, you know, repeatedly for years. And that was something that talk radio had done since its earliest days. And he just takes the entire playbook and applies it to running for office and then being in office. Right. The parallels between Limbaugh and Trump are obvious, including the braggadocious nature. It used to be your mother told you, don't be a braggart. But these are two of the most conceited men in the world. And look how they both rely on imagery as old as the Old Testament, the golden calf, the golden EIB microphone, and everything with Donald Trump is gold, including his hair. It's just an obvious model. And they even have the same burly physique. Yeah. I mean, you know, Limbaugh used to talk about how he was doing it with half his brain tied behind his back to make it fair. And, you know, a lot of what he did was tongue-in-cheek. I remember listening to one episode, I think it was during the 92 campaign, where he decided to come in for a half hour and tell his audience he had undergone a conversion experience and that he was going to tell people they had to vote for Clinton. And he's doing it to demonstrate how, like, two-faced Clinton is or something like that. I forget what the purpose was. But these callers start calling in, Rush, how could you? What are you doing? And I think it was one of the shows that was taped for C-SPAN. And you can just see him during the breaks cracking up. He is laughing because it's all tongue-in-cheek. But stylistically, you know, it was all this, the, the golden EIB microphone. It was, you can't see me, folks, but I'm holding back a sneeze with my knuckle. Or he'd rustle papers and say, here in my formerly nicotine-stained fingers. And it was so evocative. And you're right, that Trump just has a lot of these similarities. And he's putting on a show. He's an entertainer. You know, the day he comes down the escalator, Trump Tower, it's like a late morning-ish, like 11 a.m. kind of press event. And Limbaugh comes on the air, and he says to his producer, he says, you know, Snurdly, who's his call screener, James Gold, and I are sitting here and we're just laughing our heads off. This is great. This is hysterical. It's hilarious. You know, and, and he's doing a Trump voice talking about some of the things he said. But then he stops and he says, folks, I'm going to tell you something. The mainstream media is not going to get this, but this is going to resonate. This is going to resonate just like Perot did. People are sick. They're fed up. And this guy is going to resonate. And he, he nailed it. He knew the appeal, the populist appeal. And they are, as you mentioned, when you were talking about being at the Capitol, one thing that a lot of the audience doesn't see is the close relation between Republican politicians and talk radio hosts, you know, and executives, whether it's McConnell and McCarthy showing people around the Capitol, giving them speeches and things, whether it is local hosts who are friends with the local congressman or it's Limbaugh playing golf with Donald Trump or texting with them. Or talking with them. We, we know that Trump talks to Hannity regularly. He was talking to Laura Ingram regularly. He talked to Limbaugh regularly. These people were like his advisor. They were like, you know, they were like his kitchen cabinet. Right. And even worse, Michael Savage. And really, it was a pretty big clue when he went on InfoWars with that Cretan. Alex Jones, and you remember who was sitting there with Alex Jones at the time? I believe it was Roger Stone, and I got to interview Roger Stone on December 31st, 2015, and we talked about his book he wrote, but he was on for about an hour and a half, 
And my gosh, I got him talking about Roy Cohn and Donald Trump. And when they first met, all the three of them at Reagan headquarters. And he told me, watch the movie Citizen Cohn, Craig, if you want to learn about my buddy Roy Cohn. And I did it anyway. Brian, you got a PhD in all of this, and your book is just amazing. And we haven't even tackled Salem. So Rush is popular. Everybody starts imitating him because it's good for the bottom line. Isn't that the biggest part of what happens next? Yeah. Rush is a tremendous entertainer. And that's sort of what I've been trying to convey here. But what happens is a lot of people in the business think that what is going on is that his conservatism is what's resonating. And it is on some level. You know, people start calling up and saying, thank God you're on the air, Rush. We finally have a voice. And it ends up getting shorthanded into dittos and mega dittos because nobody wants to hear somebody gush for 20 right. minutes or, you know, two minutes even. But that was smart. Believe me, as a host, as a podcast host, there aren't the limitations of time. But in AM broadcasting, there's a clock and you have to hit it. And instead of the pleasantries, Limbaugh came up with that short code, ditto, and then people became ditto heads and you didn't waste all that airtime. That's exactly right. But, you know, radio executives heard that and they think to themselves, you know, conservatism is part of the thing here. They start hiring a lot of people at local stations who are not as talented as Limbaugh, not as fun, not as funny, who are much more, you know, traditional kind of commentators. And they're still experimenting. They're not going down the pathway of doctrinaire conservatism yet. You know, Limbaugh at the time when he goes national on August 1st of 88 is also doing a two-hour local show on WABC in New York because they wanted to say he was on in the New York market. And New York wasn't going to air a nationally syndicated show. And on that station were still liberals. And then the big turning point comes in the early 90s. There's a station called KVI, call letters, KVI in Seattle, and it's still a conservative talk station today. And as their executives told me, they were sitting around with Limbaugh's affiliate manager. He was in for a visit. Uh, they were smoking his cigars. And he said, you know, why do you guys have these liberal shows on? And they said, oh, you know, balance, we, we don't know. And he said, you know, nobody wants to listen to that stuff. And so they start experimenting. They start talking to callers. They have them call up and, and give their opinions on things. And they decide to experiment. They take a liberal host off, replace them with a conservative, and the ratings go up. And so they decide to go all conservative as their branding, as what their station is. And they go in like two years from 23rd in the market to first in the market. And this is unheard of. They have what amazingly long, what's known as time spent listening, which is it's not just how many people tune in. It's how long are they tuned in? Because if they're tuned in, it helps advertisers spend less money and makes advertising more attractive. And it really is boosting the bottom line. And so then the, the next piece of this is that there's a number one rated station in San Francisco. They're number one in the market. It's called KGO. They're number one in their market for like 40 years, which is crazy. And they actually have all perspectives on and a lot of news and everything like that. But there's another station in the market that is up for sale. And the general manager at KGO is a savvy old wily radio vet. And he goes to ABC and Capital Cities who own his station and say, you know, buy that up so nobody can compete with us on it. 
And they buy it up, but then they have a station and they have to program it, right? They have to put something on the air. And he calls an old program director for him who's up in Seattle and he says, you know, what they're doing at KVI, would that, would that work here? And they says, you know what? I think it would work there. And, and this guy who's telling him this is actually a card-carrying liberal. But he says, you know, the one thing you can't be openly in San Francisco is a conservative. And, you know, we're, we're going to become kind of the, the neighborhood bar of the Bay Area for conservatives. And they take off the same way. And because it's an ABC Cap City station, all the other ABC Cap City stations pay attention to this. And they say, OK, well, if this is what is working, this is what people want, then I guess we should go all conservative here. And you start to see more and more stations do this. And then there's lots of business reasons tied to the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that leads to the rapid consolidation of it. But by the time the, the last piece of this, the all conservative, all syndicated piece of this is kind of a bit of luck. Sean Hannity goes national with his radio show on September 10, 2001. And the next day is 9-11. And after that, everybody wants news and information, and they're angry. They have things to say, and talk ratings skyrocket. And because Hannity is on an ABC Cap City's host, they're syndicating. They start him with unprecedented clearance in like eight of the top 10 markets. And he gets this boost from 9-11. People tune in. They hear this new show. They like what they're hearing. And as he becomes successful, you have two nationally syndicated conservative shows, Rush and Hannity, back-to-back from 12 to 6. And it starts to make sense for a lot of people who believe in, in something called format purity. And the, the best way to explain this is they wouldn't put rock songs on a country station or they wouldn't put classical on a country station. And they think talk is the same way, and it makes sense for them economically to do these all-conservative, all-syndicated, or mostly syndicated stations. And that's how talk radio becomes, over the course of like 13 years, becomes this all-conservative, mostly syndicated kind of format. And the other thing about that pack of conservative hosts, national leaders, everybody acknowledged that Limbaugh was the lead dog. Sean Hannity deferred to him even when he became a big deal on TV. But now you have Mark Levin. It's interesting how much you wrote about him. I remember him from his efforts to get Bill Clinton removed for having oral sex in the Oval Office. Doesn't that seem quaint right now? Anyway, Levin has gone from being a lawyer like me to a full-time Big three. You put him in the top three of the influential talk show hosts. Tell us about his role and how did he become a, a lead dog? Well, Levin is interesting and he's a lead dog in the political story because he's a guy who John Boehner, I think, tells Politico. He says, you know, the, who's that guy, the really crazy one? He can't even remember his name. And he's talking about Levin. He says he comes along and he, he drags Rush and Hannity. You know, he used to go down to Palm Beach and play golf with Rush. Um, you know, because it's Boehner, he's saying things much more colorfully than I am. Well, probably swilling a glass of, of Merlot and puffing on a camel. But he says, you know, that this guy comes along and he's so crazy, right? And he drags Rush and Hannity to the dark side. And, you know, he had been a legal analyst for Limbaugh and Hannity. Think Limbaugh called him F. Lee Levin 
after uh, Fleet right. Bailey, the OJ and, and attorney. And they called him the great one. Yes, the great one. And, you know, Phil Boyce, who you know all too well. From Pueblo, Colorado. It's six foot six or six foot seven. Not that many guys are taller than me, but I have met Phil Boyce, who is a nationwide program director for Salem. And he claims he's going to put Hannity behind that WABC microphone. But back to your story. He is. He's the guy who put Hanny behind there. And he's the guy, one of the guys in the business who really believes that radio has to have a purpose, that it has to have a format and it can't be all things because if it's all things, then it's no things. So he was a guy who really, he comes in to WABC. And I mentioned when Limbaugh's on WABC, you know, just starting out, the guy who was programming it had a liberal from Brooklyn named Lynn Samuels on, and there were a couple of other liberals, and Boyce comes in and makes it all conservative. He thinks it's got to have a brand and a purpose, and he puts Hannity on first late at night, and he brings him in from Atlanta because he's he's starting Hannity and Combs, and he's, he's starting Fox at that point. So he puts him behind the WABC mic, and he's also the guy who gives Levin a shot at WABC in New York in that six to nine period. And I'll be honest, I don't totally get the appeal of Levin, not because of his politics even, but because every time I have to listen to him for something, I have to take out the earbuds I've got on listening because he's screaming all the time. It's constant you know, screaming and bashing and ranting. And he, you know, one day you think he's just going to have a stroke you know, on the air because he's constantly going off on something. But that's kind of his shtick is that he's the screamer of the bunch. He's the loudmouth and the far right guy. I mean, there's one rant I quote kind of extensively where he says, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, he's so worked up. He says, you know, that Kevin McCarthy, he's the worst of them. I wouldn't even buy a used car from that guy. He encapsulates the anger of things and stokes the anger on the political right while still kind of sticking to the format of things. You know, he uses nicknames and things like that. And he's got his own shtick, you know, deep in the underground bunker and he's he's always talking to mr producer and, and i've had people ask me you know is is there a real person or is mr producer like a, a puppet or something right and you write about the connection between a host and his or her audience and it becomes like a family so much so that mark levin made a fortune writing about the death of a dog of his and you just wondered, well, why are people so interested in this? Because they feel like this guy's part of their family. That's exactly right. One thing that people outside of this don't understand is talk radio is not like reading a newspaper. It's not like watching the news. You have people who are driving a truck, who are working in a shop, who are on a tractor, all day who spend more time with their favorite hosts than they do with their spouses. In some cases, they've done it for years or even decades. They build these bonds with the audience. And why is that important? Well, from a business standpoint, that makes it gold when a host is doing a direct read for an ad. You know, when you hear the host as they get ready to go on a break saying, now, friends, I want to tell you about this product, you know, that is amazing. But they also do that for candidates and they also do that for causes. And people who are not tuned into politics minute to minute, if they like a host, if they listen every day, if they trust a host, 
when the host says, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you about this person who you might not have heard of, but he's one of us. He's my friend. I go to lunch with him all the time. That's exactly right. He's my friend or he's a really good guy. He's a patriot. Levin likes to, to use that language. He's, you know, one of us. You might not have heard of him, but you should support him. It's powerful. It helps people raise money. Conversely, when they say, you know, Congressman Jones, he's been up there and he hasn't done anything for you. You might think he's a good guy, but he's full of, you know, malarkey and he's a huge part of the problem. He's not fighting for you. Do you ever see Joe Blow at any of our rallies? No. You see our guy, Tom Tancredo, you know. That, but- that's right. They do exactly that kind of thing. And it has this powerful impact, especially in congressional primaries and things where, let's be honest, every civic literacy survey I've ever seen says that people struggle to name their own congressmen, um, name their senators, name anybody beyond the president of the United States. And so when you get a host coming along who you trust, who you listen to all the time, saying to you, you know, we've got this primary coming up and you need to tune in for this reason and these are the candidates and here's why you should support this one, it matters. It matters a lot. And, and especially in the internet age, you might clip that segment or that interview and send it to family members or post it on Facebook or something. And it creates kind of a word of mouth thing. But they have these bonds, you know. Soon thereafter, you have Lauren Boebert, Congresswoman from Colorado. What an embarrassment. And she has all of Denver Trump radio wrapped around her little trigger finger. Anyway. <laughs> That's that's what happens. That is her favorite finger, too. Um, Rush's last show of 2020 was emotional to the point that some people thought it was going to be his last show ever on the radio. But one woman calls up and she gets all emotional and says, Rush, you're like a father to me. I wish I was a little Limbaugh. You know, you remind me of my own dad. And they're both getting all emotional because they've got this bond that has been forged over years together. And hosts foster this. They'll say, as you and I were talking about last week, as though you're the only person out there. And, you know, what, what happens is once the television makes it into the home in the, the 50s and 60s, where do people listen to radio? It's, it's in the car. It's in the shower. It's in bed. It is in these intimate places. And you have this very intimate relationship. It's an intimate medium. And the host's goal is to reach out through the radio and touch you in some way. And then they want it to be emotional and evocative. And so they they cultivate this bond. Right. And I'm thinking about talk radio, which needs to kind of go away if we're going to survive as a society or change in some way. Their revenue has to be way down with the lack of people commuting. Uh, some people listen in their shower or in their bed, but most people listen while they're in their car or on the train. And I, I, I'm not sure they're listening as much. Rush Limbaugh is fading away. Man has lung cancer. He's probably smoked his last cigar. It'll be interesting to see what happens next. Trump made him a made man in that congressional ceremony. I've often pondered who could turn against Trump and really make a difference. The guy who's at the top of the list and he never did it was Rush Limbaugh. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, if Limbaugh had really turned on him, it would have mattered because I think he had an even deeper bond with Trump's base than did Trump. But, you know, most of these guys have stuck with him. Not all. There's a guy named Bill Cunningham who's famous in Cincinnati. 
WLW, I think, are the when call letters. When did he make his break? I haven't heard about this. He was syndicated into Colorado on the weekend. And of course, I've heard of him. He's a lawyer also on the radio. Tell me what happened. I haven't heard about it. Well, I only saw a headline this morning. Somebody tweeted a headline from the Cincinnati Inquirer that said, you know, when you've lost Bill Cunningham, you have a problem. And I, I didn't get a chance to look at the story, but he's apparently broken with Trump in the, the last week. So certainly it wasn't it wasn't early in the game. But there have been a few voices here and there who, especially in the last week or two, have broken from him. But not the big guys, not the nationally syndicated hosts who have millions of listeners. And they could have made a difference to some extent. But here's the thing. A lot of them feared if we break with Trump, what happens if our audience goes with him? Because, you know, the, the people who were never Trumpers in 2016 in talk radio ended up getting drummed off of stations, ended up losing audiences, ended up getting death threats. That's where their audience was. You know, I, I talked to someone, I, was it Ken and Julie who were out there? Chuck and Julie, yes. Chuck and Julie. And I remember Chuck saying to me, I, I went on their show they wanted me the day my book came out. I went on the show, and I remember Chuck saying, you know, I was a Ted Cruz guy. I didn't like Trump, and my audience brought me around. And that was the most frank admission of, of what I had heard, you know, off the record a bunch, which was hosts didn't love this guy up front, but their audiences did. You know, one person who worked for Jeb Bush's campaign said to me, I had a host come to us and say, look, if you can talk some sense into my audience, please do, because I can't. And this is during the primary. And even Limbaugh weighed in and said, you know, if you are a conservative, we haven't had a candidate like Ted Cruz since Ronald Reagan. If conservatism is your thing, Cruz is your guy. And it didn't matter because Trump just had this allure with the audience because he was using hosts' own shtick every day. So the, I think there's been some concern, even from anybody who might have had a qualm about his thing, about well, if, if we break from him, are we going to lose our audience? Are we going to, if you, if you work for Salem, you saw what happened to Michael Medved, for one, who was nationally syndicated by Salem for two decades. I've told this story before, and I'm going to tell it to the master, Brian Rosenwald, PhD out of an Ivy League school. Phil Boyce, when he came through and he asked me, hey, are you interested in possibly doing afternoon drive with capitalism again? I said, well, I'd consider it. Do you want to go to the White House and be part of this thing? I said, yeah, broadcast from the White House. That sounds great. Can I bring my 15-year-old? Anyway, I went there. But before I was allowed to go, he said, now you're a Trump guy, right? And I said, well, I voted for him because I didn't like Hillary. But I was in the belly of the beast. All those guys were Trumpers, but not me. And he told me in the Medved rule right there. He said, you know, Michael Medved's not going to be renewed. And the Medved rule was openly discussed with me. And I brought it up when I was on Morning Joe the day after I got axed. Anyway, all these things are related. I'm kind of living a small part of your book. You are. I mean, it really, truly is. And, you know, Salem is the one company that is driven totally by politics and ideology. They do Christian talk. They do conservative talk, and anybody who wasn't sufficiently pro-Trump, who worked for Salem, got themselves into trouble. And that even includes somebody like Ben Shapiro, who most people think is you know, the most popular young voice in conservative media, who was doing AM Drive on their LA station, and he and his 
partner who were not particularly thrilled with Trump ended up losing that gig and Medved and then, you know, Charlie Sykes had been an institution in Wisconsin and you can go on down the list where there were commercial ramifications for anybody who wasn't sufficiently pro-Trump. And I think that dissuaded anybody from breaking with them. You would read the stories off the record. You know, Gabriel Sherman had some of it from the Fox people where Hannity would say to people, you know, he's nuts, completely nuts. But, you know, you'd never say that on the air. And then you deny it when it gets out there because he is that popular and is kind of a meal ticket for everybody. The guy who broke ranks and I had him on regularly as a guest was Joe Walsh. And you wrote a great piece yep. for The Washington Post about it. And that just proves how one-sided they are. Because say what you want about Joe Walsh, he's a great guest. He gives great radio, but they don't want to have him on because he's going to rip Donald Trump just like I ended up doing for about two years on Salem before they finally cut my mic. When I first went to Salem, I thought, okay, it's not Limbaugh, it's not Hannity, it's Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager. Hugh Hewitt wrote a book about Mitt Romney, a fawning book. He was best pals with the Mitster and Dennis Prager. I thought he was a reasonable, conservative guy, an intellectual far different and not as ranting as Limbaugh, maybe not as entertaining, but better educated. I thought these are two different kind of guys. And I even participated in programs with them when they'd come through Denver. They had an Ask a Jew program where Hewitt would ask Prager questions and I was going to be the backup Jew. And I had him on my show and we promoted <laughs> it. But what happened to these guys? I talk about this with John Laboutlier, the former congressman from New York who knows talk radio, with Joe Walsh. My God, for Dennis Prager to go all in with Donald Trump and Hugh Hewitt, too, is it just all about the shekels? Well, I, I think there's two elements. You know, Prager's an interesting guy. I dug up an article at one point from like 1988 or 1990, like the L.A. Times when he's, he's just in L.A., and he's describing himself as a moderate, as a guy who's got eclectic positions, who's a pragmatist. So I think he has moved to the right over time. But I think that somebody was doing a thread last week on Twitter. I can't remember who it was. It was a conservative who had gotten into it with Hewitt. And he's, he's doing this thread about Hewitt undergoing this kind of like conversion, where one week he's saying, you know, we can't be for Donald Trump. He's ripping him over Judge Curiel and the racist comments right. that Trump's making about him. And then it comes out that, you know, he gets a memo after saying that, and he writes his column, and he gets a memo from Ed Astinger, the president of Salem, saying, you know, these are the reasons we should be for him, and ends up putting a, a decent amount of that in a column, one of his Washington Post columns. So, look, I'm not going to sit here and say that Hugh Hewitt or Dennis Prager is like privately horrified or something, and it is all play acting. Because I don't think you could play act like that without it coming off as insincere at some point or those doubts kind of coming out. But I think they do know that, look, if they don't find a reason to be for Trump, they're not going to work for Salem long term. And remember, you know, in Hugh's case, I haven't looked recently, but for a while his son was working for the administration and had worked for the RNC. So he's tied to it. And maybe he knows some of these guys better than most. But in a lot of ways, what I think happened was a combination of these commercial pressures 
and what happened to a lot of conservative Republican voters, which is they started telling themselves kind of stories of like, well, he's giving us X, Y, or Z. Well, you know, he gave me the judges I like. And, you know, Hewitt's a con law guy. Um, he's a constitutional law professor. He cares about that stuff as, as much as anything. And they started to rationalize. They started to talk themselves into it. And I think you saw that a lot with people on the right. Or, and I think secretly there's also something thrilling for a lot of these folks, especially somebody like Prager, who is a traditional conservative um, moral values. It's a big thing for him. And cultural conservatism. And they felt for years, for, for decades, marginalized and maligned and scorned. It isn't just that they're losing the culture wars. It's that the left is rubbing their noses in it. And Trump comes along and they say, finally, he's fighting for us. He's fighting for our values. Okay, so he's been you know, married three times. He's had innumerable affairs. He's Johnny come lately to our causes. But he's fighting for us. He's speaking for us and he's sticking up for us. And he's punching the people who give us a hard time in the nose. And we like that. And I think that that happened for a lot of conservative voters and a lot of conservative hosts. I wonder about Dennis Prager. I've met him several times, another tall guy. But what I think happened is that he started Prager University that may have had good origins. It presented a bit of a conservative point of view, but not radical right. And then it got attacked by people on the left so much so that he got censored a little bit. And then he found that his enemies were pretty much the same enemies that Trump had. And when people are hating on you, it's hard to join their side. You are right about Bill Cunningham, Brian, because this is going to be a great test case. He's been syndicated in the past on iHeart. He's getting late in his career, sort of like Greg Garrison out of Indianapolis, who you write. But Bill Cunningham has apparently penned a column indicating that he's fed up with Donald Trump over the events of the last week. And that's great. I'd love to see more people break, but it's not like Limbaugh. It's not like Hannity. Do you see a damn break? Because maybe there will be. I hope Trump doesn't have to go a whole lot further to make it more clear to people. What do you think is going to happen next? Well, I think, first of all, the fact that he has lost his social media platforms is going to be a very, very big deal for the simple reason that he's not going to be front burner every day. There's not going to be a way for him to stay on the front burner with the audience every day. That doesn't mean that he's not going to start his own media platform or his own podcast or going to continue to be a guest all over the place. I think all of that is going to happen. But what it means is hosts are not going to have to take a position on Donald Trump every day like they do now. And so I think that rather than breaking with him, they may just stop talking about him. The focus will shift You know, once his impeachment trial is over. The focus is going to shift to Joe Biden. And you're going to go back and hear once again they're tried and true, you know, they're trying to be socialists again, or they're trying to do this, or they're trying to do that, you know, warning about how Democrats are, are one step away from being satanic, maybe not even one step, and just going after Biden, going after Biden and Pelosi and what they want to do and, and fear-mongering in that way. 
because I think the best thing for them is just not to talk about Donald Trump because then they don't have to make that choice. Here's what I think is going to happen. And it's the way I broke into the media business by being a trial lawyer on big Colorado cases and then commentating on them. I think we are going to have a trial that's going to captivate America like nothing since OJ. And it's going to be televised in the United States Senate. And this time, they're going to be able to put on evidence and timeline and a lot of witnesses who are going to say, I went in because of Donald Trump, or I coordinated with Roger Stone, or I received money from here, or Charlie Kirk gave me this. It's all going to come out. There are too many witnesses. This conspiracy was too stupid. And Donald Trump is going to be the subject of accountability, which has never happened before. And I just wonder how talk radio is going to cover it. Back during OJ, I used to go on the air and commentate every afternoon after listening to it on the radio because it was carried gavel to gavel. And that's sort of the way I broke in with OJ and then the unfortunate, terrible murder of Jean Benet and then Kobe Bryant got in trouble here in Colorado. So I love it when the truth comes out in a trial with rules of evidence of a sort of the impeachment trial. And this may lead to criminal charges against Donald Trump because you can't murder people. And I think they're holding back some of the most damning video out of the Capitol because you can bet Officer Sicknick's murder is somewhere recorded. And we will see that someday. And people are going to get worked up. And I keep thinking, what is going to make some of my old colleagues change and get off the Trump train? And I guess Bill Cunningham just jumped, but nobody in Denver, but that doesn't mean that more won't come out. At some point, I think a lot of them are going to jump off, don't you? Well, I tell people all the time that the biggest thing, the thing to watch for with hosts is where is their audience? There's nobody who has a better finger on the pulse of, of an audience of, of the conservative base than do talk radio hosts. They have this bond. They, they talk to callers. They sense the, the anger or the, the happiness or the everything engaged. Right. They know it. And I think they're going to feel out where is the audience. If the audience starts to turn on Donald Trump because there is evidence and it's horrifying then maybe you see hosts start to move away from him. But if their audience doesn't move away from him, these guys have every commercial incentive to sit there and bash the, the rhinos, the insincere Republican and name only people who wouldn't fight for Trump, who rolled over on him. You know, you, you're already hearing some of this, right. whether it's Liz Cheney who's getting bashed or one of the other Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. You're seeing all of this, and I think it comes down to where is the audience? Because it takes a special kind of person to be a Joe Walsh, to be a kind of person who says, I know this is going to hurt me personally, economically, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. It takes a special person to take money out of their own pocket like that, right? 
Right, especially if it's your main job. It was always my yeah. side job, but it was important to me. And I love my Saturday show. And you should have heard, even on my last show, the hour that I got cut as I was talking about Trump finding his Roy Cohn and Bill Barr and playing the Roger Stone sound. I had three straight callers who were conservative, but I was getting to them with evidence that Trump had not made a perfect call and that Adam Schiff was making great points. And he was dirty. It was right after Marie Ivanovich testified and I was emoting. I was emotional about it. I still am. Because if they would have heard evidence in that case, if Cory Gardner, who used to be my friend, would have allowed it, then maybe we would have had a better 2020 and 2021. In any event, I think you've hit on it. And what's afflicting the country right now is what's afflicting talk radio is that the wild animals are out of control. The crowd is running it. The inmates are running the jail. The hosts are subject to the whims of the audience who they got all stirred up. And now it's going to be a hell of a thing to calm them down again, right? Well, I think that this is the key to everything here, right? And it wasn't just the hosts. It was the Republican politicians as well, where they fed the audience this constant stream of material, not just you know exhorting the Republicans to fight harder not just telling them that the Republicans could do more if they just fought harder, but also telling them you can't trust the newspaper. You can't trust the mainstream media. They're all a bunch of leftists. They're all, you know, opposed to you. And then when there is something where they want to say, but here are the facts or, you know, guys, we've gone too far here or anything like that, they realize that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't get people ginned up for decades and say, we need somebody who's going to fight for us. And we need somebody who's tough without them turning around and saying, well, this guy is doing it. Don't tell me you're abandoning him. You know, people say, well, what happened to you? You used to be on the right side of things. You used to get it. What's wrong with you? You know, because remember, this is not 1988 when Rush Limbaugh goes national and there's not really anything in the way of media for conservatives to listen to or watch. This is a world saturated with conservative media. And if you are not going with the kind of pack, it's not like your audience isn't hearing conservative perspectives elsewhere that are. So if you try to, to switch you know, sides now or something, you're going to get a lot of callers calling up and saying, what happened to you? You know, I'm watching Hannity at night or I'm watching OAN or I'm watching Newsmax, or I'm you know, reading Breitbart, or I'm doing th- this stuff, and, and they're telling me the opposite. You know, did you go soft? Uh, so it, it's very hard to undo what they've done, especially in this saturated conservative media environment where competition is as intense as it's ever been. Right. And that's why they have to hear what Lynn Cheney said. That's what Bill Cunningham wrote in his column. And your book is excellent. I write a column for the Colorado Sun. A lot of broadcasters do that. So does Bill Cunningham in the Cincinnati Inquirer. He wrote, the saddest part is he sat in the White House watching what was going on in real time on cable TV and did not stop it. Can you imagine John Cranley sitting at home watching City Hall being ransacked and enjoying it? John Cranley, who is apparently probably the mayor of Cincinnati, And he brings it home and he reached his breaking point. But I can't help but notice that Bill Cunningham 
is at the end of his career. And maybe he wants to go out with his head held high, condemning what is obviously wrong. I mean, at some point, isn't it just too much for anybody? You'd think that they'd say it's been too much. He's leading us in dangerous directions. Just like Lindsey Graham exploded the other night. Okay, enough is enough. I'm out. And then he was yeah, back but, in. Yeah, I was going to say, then he was back on right. Air Force One with them. You know, I, I, I think that there, there are two elements of this. There, there's the, the business side of it, which is understanding where your audience is. And you're absolutely right. You know, Bill Cunningham has been on the air for decades. And he's 73 years old. So he, he's not going to keep doing this for all that much longer, regardless of Donald Trump or not. So he's got a little freedom. But there's also a kind of almost a path dependency, to use a slightly scholarly term, for people, which is if you've been on the Trump train for four years and you've stood up for this guy and you've rationalized, it's hard to turn around and say to yourself, to look in the mirror and say, my God, what have I done? Am I wrong? You know, w w was I wrong for all that time? There's a lot of powerful emotions churned up by this. And so I think it is hard for people to make that break. And I also think, remember that if you are a Trump supporter, you are more likely than not, according to the polling, to believe this election was stolen from him. And that misinformation makes you open to many more things than you would be otherwise, right? Oh, boy. Now, it was so terrible. And I warned some of my colleagues. I said, don't go with this big lie stuff, including Jenna Ellis, who used to be on the radio with me quite a bit. She filled in for me a time or two. I know Jenna Ellis, the president's lawyer. She's from Colorado. And I told her, don't go there, Jenna. This is different than other things. It's the big lie. And I mean, Third Reich-like big lie. And I've warned people not to go there because I could see where it was leading many months ago and darned if it hasn't led to violence. And God, I hope not much more. It's so great to talk to you, Brian Rosenwald. You're the smartest person on this subject. You've collated all the information, even though it's nationwide, you can't get it all. I know the Denver part of it, and I know some of these national characters. Donald Trump got elected on a three-legged stool, and that was Fox News, talk radio, and the Drudge Report. And then Drudge, thank God, he started to leave the Trump fold. And when I first noticed it, you remember when I got fired because you commented for the New York Times and who linked that story above the fold and ran it like two or three times that week as Salem lied about what really happened, was Matt Drudge, because he was starting to break away from Donald Trump. And that's really something, because the link between Drudge and Limbaugh and Trump, talk to us as we close out this interview about that, don't you think? And the other thing about Matt Drudge, who's a gay Jewish guy in real life, who's very influential, has built an incredible success, once he started printing anything mildly damning of Donald Trump, they said, what happened to Drudge? He's terrible. He's a lefty. He's this. He's that. Now, maybe he's just smart and he realizes that Trump's gone way too far. What do you make of all of that? Well, you know, Drudge has a greater freedom to do this because the economics of the Drudge Report 
are different than they are for talk radio or cable news. But you're right that there's been a lot of, well, drudge sold out kind of stuff and a lot of that chatter. And I'm sure that that cable news and talk radio hosts hear that and say, okay, there's the warning. You know, we we, we don't want to go down that pathway. But look, I think that you could vote for Donald Trump in 2016 if you didn't like Hillary Clinton. I had somebody from the, the Republican political world say to me, you know, and this was in September of 16, saying, you know, you have to understand something. If you've consumed conservative media for, you know, at that point, 24 years, 25 years that the Clintons were on the scene, you think that the Clintons are about as bad as it gets. They're, they're like one step short of Satan. They are evil. You build up a lot of hatred. And so it was easy, you know, Limbaugh, I, I think, engaged in a little of this in the fall of 2016, saying, look, folks, we've got two candidates here. One we know is terrible. One who is sounding good, but we don't know. We don't trust him. But it makes sense to go with the guy you don't know is awful than the one that you, you know, the woman you know right. is awful. And so, like, I could see people making that judgment. It's not if, the judgment if, the, if, I that, if that's forgiveness, I'm accepting it and saying thank you. <laughs> Keep going. Well, you know, I, I, I think that that was somewhat justifiable, that you, you're going to take a chance. You don't like either candidate. But, gosh, what I tried to say to people before 2016, but especially, you know, subsequently is, look, it doesn't matter what your ideology is. The first bar when selecting a president is, is this person competent? There's been a lot of stuff in the last 24 hours from the media, like incredulity, that Biden gave a speech to announce his COVID relief plan. And before that, they had briefed the press on the plan. They had advisors explain the details. They sent out policy packets. It was this coordinated you know, release. And you saw this in Punchbowl, the, the political newsletter that goes out in the morning that's new this year from people who used to be a politico, where they said, my God, it was so weird that it wasn't weird, that like nothing zany happened. It was a competent rollout. And I bring that up because we're not used to that. We're, we're used to the chaos of Donald Trump. We're used to the kind of incompetence of the, the people around him where they, they don't get anything right from a, a competence standpoint. And I think that if you watch him, if you've assessed him fairly, that that is the thing that jumps out at you is not forget the moral judgments for a second. It's the competence judgment. And I would think that people would have seen that and seen that, you know, that there's a danger in this. We've seen it during the pandemic. I guess I was reading yesterday that uh, in Taiwan and Austria, two very divergent places, they've ramped up production so that not just everyone having a cloth mask, but they've got like some sort of medical grade mask that is more protective. And we don't have that here, but you would think you would pick up on these things and say, well, wait a second, this isn't working. But for a lot of people, conservative media has spent four years saying Donald Trump was unfairly run down from day one. You know, it was all a witch hunt from day one. And it's not, and I think this is the key point, is it's not that that we're talking about the legal side of it. It's not the Adam shifting. It's what they've they've sold their audience on is this is not just a witch hunt against Donald Trump. This is a witch hunt against you. This is a personal insult to your values. You know, what have we heard in the last week or two, uh, or I guess 10 days now, is 
anybody who wants to impeach Trump over this or anybody who's angry at Trump over this or blaming Trump, it's disrespecting the 74 or 75 million Americans who voted for Trump. This is about it's about you. It's not just about him. He is the avatar for how much they hate you. And that is a powerful message. Uh That's how you build this kind of cult where one way or another, you better be on the Trump train because he's for you and they hate you. Oh, boy, you're getting my blood pressure going. I mean, this is what (laughs) Peter Boyles used to say, and I knew that my time there was going to be short when he said that this Ukrainian shakedown impeachment was really aimed at you, not at Donald Trump. And they refused to discuss the damning facts. Just nobody talked about Marie Ivanovich other than make fun of her appearance or God knows what, because she's a woman. Alexander Benman ridiculed. It was outrageous, and I kept calling it out. And now the irony, Peter Boyles, who really runs that station, 710 KUS, he's the guy who got his buddy Chuck and Julie there, Chuck who got kicked off, who said, that impeachment's so boring, I'd rather to have a good school shooting. And then he's in the New York Times getting fired because you can't talk about those things. Anyway, back to Boyles, because this will tickle your fancy. And let me tell my audience, I don't listen that much, but I listen enough to know that he put on that Joe Oltman, the guy who made up a story about Eric Coomer at Dominion Voting Systems. They pumped it out through 710 Can US, including on the Peter Boyle show. And Randy Corcoran brought that to everybody and to Sidney Powell. And next thing you know, Dominion Voting Systems is at the heart of the big lie, as it had to be, because it has to be a multi-state system to make this conspiracy theory. Look, we have a Peter Strzok who's saying, don't worry about Trump. He's not going to win, you know, and put an expletive in. I infiltrated a call. And none of these hosts say, well, how did you infiltrate an Antifa call? Because that doesn't matter. They're going to run with the story. And Boyles, who's not completely stupid, realizes that Corcoran and Michelle Malkin and Altman are feeding him a line of bull. There is no real evidence. Jenna Ellis really is an equality lawyer. And as he figures it out, the one conspiracy theory he won't believe in, his audience is all over him. Are you a defector? What's wrong with you, Peter Boyles? And so for the last several weeks, Peter Boyle's been on tilt against his audience saying, I don't know if it's worth it, this and that. And the roosters come home to roost. And as a Jewish guy, I'm always offended because these guys try to say the other side are the Nazis and the long knives and they are all politically correct. And you can't say this, you can't say that. It's this side. The Nazis were right wingers. And you guys get your history wrong and you mislead your audience on this. And now you are eating each other. I told you you got my blood pressure up there, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it's a shame. It's a shame to see the country ripped apart this way. It's a shame to see this all over Donald Trump, who at the end of the day only cares about Donald Trump. You know, what's driving him is ego. What, what's driving him is not being able to face up to the fact that he lost an election, that he has a lot of people who love him, but they're not the majority. But with a lot of these folks, it, it's really become about us and them. And it is a soap opera of like good and evil. And they feel like they're fighting for their values, that their audience is 
beside themselves over things. And it, it's, it's dangerous. It's problematic. It's something where, you know, what has happened in, in the last week? What have they gone to? Some have gone with the well, it was Antifa. Um, and, and some of the, you know, the more honest voices on the right have said, look, guys, that's ridiculous. From Eric Erickson to Guy Benson to, you know, th- th- there have been a lot of them. And Kevin um, McCarthy you, had to admit that on the House floor. That's, that's big right. of you, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, he had to admit that. So then what, what is plan B? Plan B is, well, you know, the, the Democrats and, and the liberal media, they didn't care about the riots all summer. They, they didn't care about it when it was their guys. They're just selective about this. You know, they love when they can't defend the right. They go with the double standard argument. They go with the. What about um, well, What about yeah. Hillary? What about uh, Barack Obama? And, you know, that's the basis of the big lie. And I was on while you were going to school. I was doing an afternoon drive and we all confronted the character Barack Obama. And the argument was. Look at Reverend Jeremiah Wright. He's a left-wing radical. You can't trust this guy. But you know what? We had eight years under Obama, and he wasn't radical. And even better, now that he's been out of office for four years, we see the way he leads his life, and he's a nice American with a nice American family. So he's not a radical. So where's your big argument, Rush Limbaugh, on down? Isn't that the truth there? Yeah. I mean, it, it is amazing to me that how, how they turned Barack Obama, who was basically a center-left, con-law professor, mild-mannered guy, into a socialist. Um, and they're, they're trying to do the same thing with Joe Biden. And more so to Kamala Harris. Oh, my God. Yep. Don't get me started on the racism and the anti-Semitism here, because it's deep. Brian, I, I can't believe I got to talk to you for this long. And I'm going to play it all. We do very little editing. I just want people to know what's in your future. What are you doing with your life after you've written this great book? And how do you suggest people buy it? Well, you can buy the book anywhere you you buy books, from local bookstores. I love to see people supporting them to Amazon. And it's an ebook and it's an audio book. Next for me, I edit a daily history section for the Washington Post called Made by History. It's a partnership between a bunch of us professional historians and the Post. So I'm always editing content. And I do a fair amount of radio, television, and writing pieces of my own when, when I get a minute. I'm in the classroom this year. And so I'm, I sort of just take things as they come because I enjoy teaching, but I love doing commentary. I love writing things. So a lot of that stuff. And at some point, I guess there'll be another book. But for now, you know, it's been like a nonstop. The, the news is, is sort of, it's like a roller coaster. And anytime you think it stops, it, it just keeps going. So I, I sort of just sort of go with the news cycle and what opportunities and requests there are and kind of go with it. But I have a website, brianrosenwald.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at brianros1. I, I have lots of things to say, probably too much to say about both sports and politics, but I always welcome engagement with people. And, you know, I'm, I'm out there. Well, you are a fantastic guest. I can't thank you enough. Let's stay in touch and all the best to you, Brian. Thanks so much, Craig. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Take care. Bye. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. 
He is a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do. And I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to. And he will give you a great deal if you say Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture. Smile back. 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. For the best possible deal, tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. What a pleasure it is to have this microphone to express myself during this dramatic moment in American history. Let's hope we can all look back on this and explain how we did what we could to stop it. Stop Donald Trump. God willing, I will join you next week. Donald Trump gone, Joe Biden on. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.